Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Start Ed Up podcast, member of that education podcast network. Today, I'm re-releasing the episode we did over a year ago with Seth Godin. I'm doing this for several reasons. Number one, uh, this summer has been crazy, and I have not had a lot of time to produce and record new podcasts, although I promise you there's some coming up very soon. Uh, but number two is because this foundation that we're starting to run has been all sorts of crazy. Uh, in fact, we just got back from a trip from New York City. We got to meet and uh, visit Mr. Godin out on his home turf and uh, also got to do some things at Atlantic Records and at CNBC and all sorts of just amazing things because we're doing this for our Started Up uh, Student Accelerator Incubator. And while we were out there, uh, Mr. Godin gave us some of his time, but most importantly, he gave students feedback on their on their pitch and on their business ideas, or in some cases, their existing business. And so uh, Hunter and I were just in awe uh, because, you know, several years ago, I got the chance to meet him. And then, you know, doing this podcast was, was fun. And it's just turned into such a, a unique um, and interesting relationship. So uh, I'm honored to bring out this uh, dust off this one again from over a year ago. Uh, it brought me so much value, and matter of fact, the towards the end, play this for your class or listen to it deeply on the top three people. I'll leave it at that. You have to listen to the end of this on the top three people. You'll know it when you hear it. It left me speechless, and it is something that I play for my class to this day, and it really challenges you to step up to the plate. So again, listen towards the end of that podcast, but I'm telling you, the whole thing is a gem. Hunter and I thoroughly love doing this interview. So enjoy, Seth Godin. Okay, and now we're joined by Seth Godin. Seth, thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, in today's uh, Hunter Stone, he's a former student of mine, and he's also going to be talking about the student perspective of this. But really, the origins of this call was um, one, I had read several of your books, but I remember the time I read Lynchpen, and you had a pretty significant part of it kind of dedicated towards education. That I started taking notes feverishly because I never had somebody from outside of education truly understand what we're up against. And my gosh, since the years followed, and also then you've, you know, put, you know, wrote Stop Stealing Dreams, did that, you know, awesome TED Talk, kind of explain to people that might have not have read Lynchpin or watched, you know, read Stop Stealing Dreams, where you think we are in education and why we're in such desperate, desperate times. Well, thanks for teeing that up. I'm not outside of education. I'm outside of the bureaucracy. And those are two different things. And I think that gets to the heart of the problem. That uh, bureaucracies are wonderful when they work. They leverage our, our strengths. They enable us to get things done. The problem is that we have built a system based on industrialism. And that system needs compliance. It's about obedience and compliance. And in Stop Stealing Dreams, I talk about the history of the education system as we know it. It hasn't always been this way. And mostly I make the claim that going forward, the only way we're going to be able to make a difference, to succeed, to have the lives you wanna have is by teaching people how to solve interesting problems and how to lead. 
And unfortunately, the educational bureaucracy doesn't let us do either of those things. And as a parent and as a teacher, an informal teacher, I think we need to double down and figure out how to create a system that produces the outcome that we seek. Well, the scary thing is, I totally agree, but getting people to understand the severity, especially with you know some of the exponential technologies we have, I, people, some people have been reading the jobs reports or some of the things that are going to be completely replaced with automation and machine learning and things of this nature. Um, I, I think you know one of those persons is you. Mike Rowe has definitely been you know leading this battle cry. How do we get people to understand uh, right now? Uh, some of the things that we're doing in school have very little bearing on where things are going. Because I, I, I think that we need to get our mindset right first and understand why we're doing this. So what is the first step in doing that at a, at a mass level? You know, people very rarely do something that makes no sense whatsoever. They do something that rewards them in the short run. So getting folks to understand long run is really difficult you know that in the long run it's very clear that our atmosphere is under threat and our great-grandchildren are going to curse us out because we're screwing up but that doesn't keep someone in the short run from taking various actions we can spend all our time teaching people what's going to be like in 10 or 20 or 30 years but the system the bureaucracy is rewarding them for what they do today and so when you see a fifth grade teacher pushing for compliance, well, that's because she thinks she will be rewarded for good standardized tests, and she probably will. And where I come at this is that the client and the student needs to ask a simple question, and they need to ask it again and again and again. And that question is, what is school for? What is this test for? What is this lecture for? What is this class for? What is my tuition for? And if we can ask that question and get enrollment from the system, from the teacher, from the administrator in response on how we can explore the answer to that question, that purpose-built process is the way we make change happen. Not by talking about jobs reports and the long-term thing, because everyone thinks that's not their job. What's your job, though, is to do what this is for. So if you want to teach me history, tell me why we're doing it this way. Or if you're saying, no, I'm doing it this way because I want to please the regents or I want to please the administration, fine, introduce me to those people because I need to have a conversation with somebody about what this is for. Yeah, I, I got to completely agree with you um, it, in the sense that Don and I have tried to communicate some of these more in depth or, or you know, really crazy outside of the box ideas to a lot of people. You know, we generally get the uh, we, we get the pretty crazy looks or the you guys don't know what you're doing, things like that. But once you get people to start viewing things through the mindset, then it all starts to come together. So do you think that um, Don and I as educators and as leaders, the, the, the step we can take is to just start trying to explain the why? Well, I think we need to begin with what drives somebody to make a career out of education? And there are many people who are in it because they want to change lives. But there are also many people who are in it because they want a good, steady job and they want to succeed at their job and they want it to be steady. And the challenge we have is getting enrollment from those people to make change happen. Because if you're seeking deniability, 
you are probably not looking for responsibility. And when a talented teacher, and it sounds like the two of you fit that category, chooses to change people, they discover that they can. It's just uphill. It's a push. We're not going to change the system in time. What we have to do is have individuals choose to go on this journey with their students. And that is where we draw the distinction between system and educators who care. The most basic quote in all of education, students yeah. don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Absolutely. And like you, you being able to show that to us, you know, my personal journey through the innovations class and the journey, a lot of my friends and colleagues who have been successful since then, um, uh, it, it all starts with that, you know, as as you're talking about, Seth, we're stuck in that archaic idea of the industrial age, um, the the compliance and the complacency and all of the all of just the the humdrum boredom. Uh, we're stuck in that area. And then Don taking that um, embracing the mindset himself, trying to take the journey with us, trying to show us um, how there's different places to go each step of the way that, you know, him showing us that he's not afraid to embrace that mindset allowed us to not be afraid to embrace that mindset. And that allowed us to grow and take all kinds of chances. Uh, you know, and I think that that's an interesting segue into, uh, you know, one of the things that you talk about a lot that I absolutely love, which is the idea of the lizard brain, you know, we're all really comfortable um, in what we do now, and we like to stay comfortable. And when we've got some crazy ideas that kind of stray out of that, um, you have an interesting uh, explanation about why that is. So can you explain a little bit about the lizard brain? Well, I didn't invent the term, but it basically comes down to the fact that if you look at the brains of mammals all the way back through millennia, we evolved to keep adding layer after layer after layer. That what's a, what makes a wild animal a wild animal is that's what their brain does. It's filled with fear and it seeks survival. And then as we evolved into a more advanced species, advanced in quotation marks, we added new layers of brain around that wild animal brain. But that wild animal brain, called by some the lizard brain, is the place where most of the chemicals are that can be instantly released. It's the place where we go when we are on high alert. It's the part that makes you nervous in a movie because your conscious brain knows you're in a theater but your lizard brain thinks you're being attacked by that monster on the screen. Well, the lizard brain is easily activated because it's the thing that got us here in the first place. And it gets activated by being called to the principal's office. It gets activated by teaching a new part of the curriculum. It gets activated by being called on in class. And when it gets activated, chemicals flood our brain and we keep our head down and we're afraid. Well, here's what I know about education from a lifetime of doing it. Education is not the exchange of data or even the exchange of information. That it is not difficult to educate somebody in something like, what's the combination for this combination lock? You just write down the combination. If they want to open the door, they can. What's difficult is someone to the precipice of confronting something that they are afraid of. What's difficult is changing habits. What's difficult is getting people to see the world differently. And the reason these things are difficult is because they're, and as soon as the fear shows up, is we retreat. So even the best teacher, she will not be able to change more than half the people in that class because they are not fully enrolled and because they are afraid. You know, I, I, a bad I, teacher. Go, go ahead, ahead, please. Well, no, the thing I love about that is, is that there, the fear oftentimes is with our, I'm using air quotes, our best students. 
because the the amount of risk. This is one thing I like that that Hunter had to say on the follow up. You know, I, I'm constantly learning myself, and and I definitely am transparent with that. You know, I think a lot of times in innovation time or twenty percent time or genius hour, whatever you want to call it, I think the best thing that can teachers can do is to take that journey too, and you share it with them. But in getting the lizard brain uh, to come overcome our fear, it's it's a lot of times just taking the risk because the good student has learned how to be a professional student. If I sit here and I shut my mouth and I clasp my hands and I look like I'm paying attention, and if I, if I memorize things just long enough for this week, then I'll be considered a success. What I have a hard time with... That's right, what, but those, what, people, what have, those people aren't good students. I, I know. Those I, people... I totally agree. School, but they're not good students. Exactly. And 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 that's what it is that's what it scares me is cuz even in college I remember we had this thing called the drop ad period and basically it was a trial run of your professor. And you know the the the, the professor that came in and he smelled a little bit like cannabis and he said hey man we're we're all going to get A's and it doesn't matter about the grade I just want to have you know it's going to be a fun journey and you're like oh this is great and then the guy that came in slammed his suitcase down and he said hey this is going to be a tough class but you're going to learn a lot students would run for the exits because it wasn't about the learning it was about the hoop you had to jump through and and, and that completely flies in the face of what I see kids when they are in flow states and learning i.e. playing video games no kid ever wants to buy a video game they can beat on the first try. They would never want to get an A on a video game on their first try. Yet in school, it's seen as the exact opposite. I better get an A on my first try or I, I might not get into that great college of mine. And I think this is a huge issue that we have to tackle now. That's right. And if you're a parent and you pay $200,000 for your kid to avoid difficult work, uh, you should be incensed. And if you're in debt because you're paying for it, you should feel responsible. But the argument that I'm trying to make is if you think that the purpose of school is to create the letter A and a soccer trophy, well, then that's what you're getting. And it's just like going to the store to buy a muffin. If you keep buying blueberry muffins, they're going to keep making them. No, I, I agree. So, But see that this is the catch-22. Some of our students, and I remember when Hunter first took the class, some of the students were like, hey, you know, some of my college admissions people are questioning what this class is called innovation and open source learning. It doesn't have the AP in you know, front of it or behind it, and that's kind of scary. And they were just reacting to the, to the rules that they're following. You know, the college is going to look for the schedule of choice. And if that doesn't fit into it, that's a problem. Well, then when is college, and I'm not anti-college, I'm not bashing colleges across the board, but when are they going to kind of smell the fumes and realize that sometimes the kids that are really great risk takers and innovators might not take a solid AP schedule. They might be inventing things. They might be taking some risks. And just because they're not on prom committee and have a stellar class schedule doesn't mean that they're bad students. It means that they could be innovative risk takers. Right. And here's another example of fear and the bureaucracy working together. The single best way to get into the college of your choice, fill your schedule with typical teen activities and A grades. That yes, most famous colleges want 70% of their, but the odds of you getting picked are basically random. The 30% that go to the interesting people, that's where you have your shot. So the guidance counselors who are telling you these things, they're just hiding as well. 
because what they're doing is being cogs in a system that rewards them for compliance. And as fearful bureaucrats, they're grasping at the straw of my job is to make little brown cows to go to this slaughterhouse, as opposed to saying, you know what, if I make remarkable people, they're not going to have any trouble ending up with the education that they deserve. That's a great segue into this question. So you you talk a lot about how um, the goal for everybody now should be to effectively communicate ideas. Uh, You talked about how we used to be in this age of spam and we're transitioning out of the age of spam and now we're all going to be in the fashion business soon because um, classic advertising just doesn't work like it used to anymore. And you do make a big point about making things remarkable. So what, what makes a remarkable idea? Well, it's pretty simple. It means worth talking about. If someone talks about your idea, then by definition, it's remarkable. It's not my job to say this is remarkable and this isn't. It's just what gets talked about. That's the way ideas spread now. That's the way people make up their mind. So the choice, the challenge is to say, what path am I going to leave and where am I going to go to make something that's interesting enough, innovative enough that people would miss if it was gone and that feel compelled to talk about it. What are some of the things that if you were, a, you know, if, if you were a parent right now and your son was in, uh, say, third grade, uh, your daughter was in fourth grade, whatever, uh, what are some action steps that just because your school isn't, might not be fostering this innovative mindset, what are some things that parents could be doing now to encourage this? Well, my thesis is that all kids are homeschooled, even if they go to public school for seven or eight hours a day. The other 16 hours are somewhere else. And what are they going to do the rest of the time? I think your job as a parent is from three o'clock on to homeschool those kids in all the things they can't get from the bureaucratic institution. Teach them to fail. Teach them to put themselves in the world. Teach them to lead. Teach them to be generous, to be creators of connection. And I don't mean like just sitting around, teach them, have them do it. They should be blogging when they're eight. They should be making videos when they're 10. They should be running a nonprofit when they're 12. Why not? There's no risk. There's no loss. There's no downside. That when we train people to stand up and speak when they're 11, well, then don't be surprised that they're going to grow up to people who know how to speak and persuade. But if they spend all their time watching TV and the internet, well, then don't expect that they're going to be anything but consumers of information, not creators of information. And there are parents who say, well, I work really hard, blah, blah, blah. Well, you should have thought of that before you had kids. Possible to work a full-time job and still create an environment where your kids become the human beings that they are able to become. And what we can't do is give into peer pressure our responsibility to make a difference to some magical system of the internet that's making a profit from our kids' attention. Strongly about this, and I'm capable of talking about it because I've done it myself. Yeah, that's something I'm deeply passionate about as well, Seth. I, I just got back from Medellin, Colombia, and um, they have this problem where they're like, okay, Don, we've set up this culture of innovation and a lot of people still aren't showing up because a, a lot of people there are uh, hourly workers. And they're trying to make the shift of the people that said, okay, if I just stay quiet and keep my head down, I'll always be employable. And I was talking to one of the guys that had started a a large coffee company. He says, hey, he's trying to tell people the farms used to employ 200 people. Now they hire less than 10 because of the technology. 
so how do you, it seems as though a lot of times people of tradition mindset, and sometimes that's the very wealthy, and the people of uh, subservient mindset, and a lot of times that's poverty, have the hardest time overcoming this old way of doing things. Um, other than showing them some data, what would you also recommend, again, for these parents that say, no, 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 I, I memorized law and I am a lawyer and I did well, or, you know, I, I kept my mouth shut and I'm a good employee. I know my son will be a good employee someday. How do you break them from that cycle on both ends? Well, I'd say two things as a marketer. The first is data never changes anybody's mind ever. That a story can change somebody's mind, that the way they interpret data can change. Ah, uh, good point. Nobody's yes. look at data and change their mind. But the second thing I would say is uh, one of the great phrases in the internet is shun the non-believers. The people you need to work with first are the people who get the joke. They are the ones that are going to change other people's minds, not you. And so by getting the people who raise their hand, pushing them super hard, transforming their lives, that's how you spread the word. People who have their arms folded and who don't understand what you're trying to do. You know, the one thing I'm also trying to uh, impress upon, and, and we had a, a talk uh, from a guy who's an ex-Navy SEAL, and, and he was talking about, you know, problems always should go up the chain of command and not down. And so I, I asked him, I'm like, what if you have a fundamental problem with the up chain of command? Um, you know, my up chain of command, you know, I, I, my principal supports what we do, but it's, you know, superintendent supports what we do. Then it becomes, a, like you talked about earlier, a bureaucracy level. Other than shouting from the rooftops, I, I, I'm trying to find out ways that you can subtly, because you're right, the data may not work, but talking to lawmakers, policy people like this, how, how would a teacher say, okay, 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 I'm buying in. I want to be innovative. I want to have time for a genius hour or 20% time. But how can I, when I'm being judged by the state on my state standardized scores? Which it's it's ironic because you know now we're teaching kids in college the score you know the SATs and the scores don't mean as much yet we're still doubling down on them. How does that teacher work up the chain of command to get something done, or is it a lost cause and we should shut our doors and just quietly do it on our own? Well, you sounded super disappointed with my alternative when you said shut the door and quietly do it on your own. I'm sorry that that's... Oh, no, 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 I'm not. No, I, no, I'm, no, I think that's, that's the solution that's for a lot of people. The way right. Great teachers yeah. have always taught that way, right? Yeah. Well... Without a doubt, we got to... We have to yeah, figure out how to organize parents to, to speak up. But if I was in the system, I would begin by enrolling parents, not state legislators. I would say, okay, there's 120 parents in my grade I'm looking for 20 kids who want to be part of this. And I'd start with an after-school program and work from there. Because if you get from parents and kids, it gets way easier to get the bureaucracy to leave you alone. Um, but the other part of it is standardized tests and should be eliminated. But with the right group of kids, you'll find plenty of time to... Uh, get the right work done and still have them do okay on standardized tests. The reason standardized tests are hard for a lot of teachers is you have no enrollment from the kids. If the kids aren't eager to get that over with so they can go back to the good stuff, it never ends. Yeah, but I totally agree. For everybody, and you're not everybody, you're top of the heap. And that is an advantage for you.
Well, and, and I, I, everything you just describes, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten in trouble because I asked for forgiveness, not permission. The only time, the, the only hesitancy in my voice was I also know or have known some teachers that did shut their door and do it their own way. And that old way was the standardized test way, you know, because I, and, and again, most, the vast majority of teachers are here because they absolutely want to, but there are some that are holding on to, you know, I don't like this new fluffy stuff. It's an educational buzzword of the day. I'll just shut my door and I'll do it the way I was used to. That, you know, that's the catch 22 of innovation versus um, sure. holding fast to, you know, my dad's, I always will remember this. I wrote about it. My dad, I wasn't always in education. I used to work for a think tank in downtown Indianapolis. And um, everybody in my edu- everybody in my family was an educator. And I promised myself I wouldn't be until I realized I had to be. And and I told my dad, I'm like, hey, I hope you're not mad because they, sp- they spent every penny of my education. I didn't have to pay for my college, which was, I, I, I too won the parent lottery like you did. And I asked my dad, I'm like, Hey, I'm going to go back and, you know, I'm not asking for money, but I'm going to go back and be a teacher. And my dad said, you know, Donnie, I don't care if you teach for the next 20 years, just promise me you won't teach one year, 20 times. And <laughs> that, yeah, that was the difference. And that's why the hesitancy in my voice of, I too got a reputation of closing my doors and t- doing it the way I felt best. But I always did it in the sense of I'm doing what's best for kids. But I know a certain faction of people that they still think that what's best for kids is solid SAT prep round the clock. And I well, understand their perspective. I really do. Cause in reality, they may be onto something. And, and heck, Seth, this is the reason why I have this podcast. You know, I want more well, educators I, wait, 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 to be wait, wait. proven you people said, like you. The sentence you just said, I can't let it stand. You okay, don't good. actually believe that they're correct. It's clear that they're not. They're wrong. And well, it's okay, okay to say they're wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard. Yeah, but but to their credit, and, and I know this is the back and forth, but to their credit is because they're just playing by the rules that are set out in front of them. I look at the rule and say, well, that's just folly because the most successful people I know all say the same thing. Take massive risks. Fail as often as you can. Have fun with it. Adapt. Make a fool of yourself so you realize that on the other side, it's not that bad. Stand out. Be that purple cow. Whatever. All these things are almost universal from every successful person, yet I totally agree you're not going to find it in school. Yet when I get some pushback from some other educators, you're like, well, you know, case in point, a couple of my students, and Hunter, you can weigh on this, a couple of my students have decided not to pursue college because they've taken some entrepreneurial risks. And in one case, I'm like, that's so cool. Brad decided not to go. And then I've got some other people on the sidelines saying, you may have ruined this kid's life because you know, he didn't go to school this year. Uh, you know, it, that's that's true, but I, it, it all, I mean, we're going to have to change at some point. I mean, I, I, I honestly totally believe in everything that you've said, Seth, in the past about how the future is going to be totally different. I mean, this stuff is not going to be applicable in, in, in 20 years. We're going to be having a different conversation on, geez, why didn't we adapt faster instead of, in, instead of, wow, we should look out for the future. I mean, it's, yeah, I, I got to totally agree. Look, the thing with um, the thing with a lot of people, though, is if they're taking the risk, that's fantastic. You know, um, at least some of these people, even though their lives may be ruined, I, you know, I think that's a gamble that's got to happen because but no, 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 see no, if no. it works. 
guys? Where do you live? What state? We're in Indiana. I'm in Indianapolis, Hunters in okay. Bloomington. So I don't, I don't want to be all coastal on you, but the words you're using are challenging because you've several times in the last couple of minutes used the word risk. The word risk has a very specific meaning. And what it means is that something that's risky is more likely to have a negative outcome than something that's not risky. Clearly show you that going $200,000 in debt to go to a standard college, to get a standard education, to learn how to do average stuff for average people is way riskier than a motivated, intelligent person spending those same four years doing something else. Now, if someone wants to go to college and challenge status quo in college and push themselves and take more courses than they're supposed to and go deep into things like philosophy or physics or mechanical engineering and be one of those edge cases, by all means, go do that because that works. College is high school, but with more binge drinking, let's go party for four years. That's the riskiest, stupidest thing <laughs> anyone can do. So I, let's I, call a risk a risk. Uh, no, I told no. Okay, this is where I'm sitting on on the fence because I totally agree with you. I'm actually a big fan of uh, you know the teal scholarship, everything else. It's just that you're right. In my midwestern point of view, I I well, case in point, my own daughter. Um, she we had the opportunity to to interview Tim Ferriss, and her first question, Tim, was, "Do you support the gap year?" And his response was, "Unless your gap, you know." You, just don't be afraid of that your gap lasts lasts more than one year because my daughter is an honor student and she may be foregoing it altogether. So I, as a parent, I understand, but I also understand some people's mindset of because we've had years and years to support this. That college is your um, safety net. That that is going to make you successful. Now I totally get your point, um, but I'm just trying to like bring innovation and this is i'm sure where you might pounce i'm trying to bring innovation and education in small increments i'm afraid if if all of a sudden i'm beating that drum of you know don't go to college it's a big you know uh, a debt exercise things like that i'm afraid that people might run for the hills or run away from me screaming and kicking it's okay to go to college what i'm saying is going to college is risky and you should treat it as an appropriate risk and what that means is if you're going to do it, A, don't go to a place just because it's famous. Like, this is the week everyone's getting their final college things. I'm surrounded by teenagers who are like, should I go to Skidmore or should I go to Kenyon? Well, how are you picking them based on how other Westchester children think of Skidmore and Kenyon? Because you have, there's no data there. That's just a, how am I going to spend a quarter of a million dollars on a brand that sort of means something? Or even worse, to go to a place with a famous football team, which makes no sense whatsoever. We had really good college before we had really big football. They're not related, right? But you're about to do a risky thing. Then you can take a deep breath and say, whoa, this is a huge risk. The biggest risk I'm going to take in my life to date. And I'm basing it on a football team? Really? Uh, I, then I, you can make a smart decision. Right. I think one thing you are hitting on, which I think is beautiful, is that some people are choosing the famous college for social capital. And what I'm wanting my students to know, and Hunter has really embodied this, is that why not do social capital now? You know, the whole foundation of our innovation and in open source learning is the open source of the learning. 
you know, in my class, there's several things that are going on that I have no idea of how they're accomplishing it. I'm just glad they are. I'm their project manager. And, you know, Hunter has done a masterful job of reaching out to people that are smarter, way smarter than me. So why not encourage middle school, high school kids to start finding those mentors, finding those um, people to learn from than spending a lot of, because I agree, there's some things that our college is great for, but if you are picking that college for that social network, why not start building that social network right now? Oh, I mean, there's so many things. Mostly it's about deniability. Parents want deniability. Kids want deniability. Teachers want deniability. And we are denializing our way into this huge corner because the thing is we can't out- cog other countries they're way better than we are at standardized tests way better than we are at fitting in way better than we are at doing what they're told we're not going to win that way we're not going to get more than our fair share of innovation or jobs or technology or social good because we're more obedient and this is just true so given that it's true what i say to any parent who's listening or any teacher who's listening is We've got thousands and thousands of hours to change lives. That's why we decided to become educators. Don't change lives in the service of good SAT scores, more compliance, and eventually we'll get to the placement office and some great job will be waiting for them. Because that hasn't been true in a really long time and it's never going to be true again. That might have been my favorite statement ever. Hunter, you want to weigh in on that as a 21-year-old? I honestly think that it's all totally based off of connections and networking. And I know that everybody has said that forever. Um, and I know that you hear that in TV, it's who you know, or you hear that, um, you hear that wherever, but it, it actually started to hit me the last couple of years. Like I'd be, I, when we'd meet up with some cool people that would tour the class or would talk to me and some of my friends, you know, I'm not trying to toot my own horn cause I hate that, but people would be like, you are years and years ahead of anybody else like you. You know, it's it, so it's weird. I mean, just it, it's what you put in now and it's what you try to do to get uh, it, to get more connected and to see what you can bring to others and see what you can get from others that really will propel you forward. Yeah. And it's his statement of the fact that we're doubling down on all these compliance issues, all to boil it down on whether an admissions guy is going to give you a thumbs up, thumbs down on things that don't necessarily matter as much anymore it, it's it's absolutely amazing to me like you know i think of the issues that i'm facing right now as far as you know i'm down at iu i'm i'm trying to get into the kelly school of business here and I, you know i just I, I weigh all that stuff in my head all the time because it's funny because i'm dealing with um I, i'm dealing with trying to trying to balance it out i'm trying to figure out do i want to do what's going to impress and get the thumbs up or do i want to do what's actually going to propel me forward it's what's actually going to be a way to affect people, what's going to build things. And I, you know, it's, the whole thing is just amazing. Yeah. And Seth, I will say this because Hunter won't toot his own horn. He is right now working uh, for three startups. Oh, and by the way, he's a full-time student. Um, so I think that he's that guy that's trying to be the entrepreneur within school for sure. Uh, any advice for guys that are like Hunter? Don't get an MBA. Seth, you talk a lot about uh, the the best ways to spread the ideas and you talk about how we you should start with a small group and then how an idea spreads from there on so can you explain that process just a little bit more in detail so so for people 
that are some of Don's students that are, you know, just branching out or just getting their start or, or just experimenting with this new thing of I'm going to build something. I'm going to see, I'm going to take some, I'm going to do some crazy things. Let's see where it goes. How do they get that first idea, bring it to that group? And then how does it grow from there? Okay. Well, let me step sideways for a little bit. I do not believe that the Silicon Valley model is widely applicable. I do not believe that the thing you need is an original idea, nor do I believe that you need funding. Uh, there's just not a lot of uh, informa- data or history that shows that that's how you're supposed to do it. That's what you do if you want to get your picture on the cover of Inc. Magazine. But that's not how you live a productive life, nor is it how you maximize your chances you're going to make an impact. Yet most of the people who have freedom and are making an impact are doing it because they bring a posture and a background and a skill set that few other people can. So that means they've done a whole bunch of hard work that makes them irreplaceable. And the second thing is we need more boring businesses and it's okay to copy your idea. It's okay to say this thing's working in Cleveland, I'm gonna build it in Indianapolis. No points are taken off for that kind of behavior. Because what we're really in the business of doing is creating value for our customers, creating value for our employers, creating value for our partners. And so if you are in the value creation business, that's enough. Figure out how to reliably create value and a line will form outside your door. So with all that said, what I would say to somebody is instead of going to business school, don't do anything that feels super crazy risky figure out how to be extraordinarily generous for two years. For two years, 10 hours a day, six days a week, be the center of things. The person who makes things happen, the person who solves interesting problems, the person who, when they walk into the room, value is created and added. Because if you can do that, even in the smallest possible way, for two years, you're gonna leave those two years behind going at a thousand miles an hour. And the people who wasted two years in business school are going to know what the Black Shoals option pricing model is and want to get a job at Goldman Sachs. But guess what? Goldman Sachs doesn't recruit in Indiana because they don't need to because there's a surplus of MBAs who know the Black Shoals equation. Yeah. Creating that linchpin mentality that you're indispensable. That's, oh. Seth, I want to thank you um, for being on. I, you have forced me to think. Um, I, I, I love your insights. I, I love your passion. And I like the fact that you're not sugarcoating anything. Um, what I am hoping and praying that more people, especially educators, and, and to your point, parents, start demanding that we take a look at what the future is bringing. And we start asking what you had started off with, the fundamental question of what are we here for? And, and I, I too do that. I, I, I do a fair amount of presentations other all over and I ask that question, you know, what is our role? And of course, to prepare kids for the future. Okay, what does the future look like? Or my favorite, um, to, to prepare them for college or to prepare them to be employee ready. And my, my point is a lot of times like, I don't want them to be employee ready. I want them to be employer ready. And, and your journey of being indispensable, your journey of being creating value of others is, I think, one of the single best 
things for our students and parents and educators to ponder. And, and for that, I, I sincerely appreciate your work in education for doing things like you know, your, not your books, but then your, your PDF of, uh, you know, stop stealing dreams. Uh, it's, it's been enlightening and you have inspired many for sure. Well, let me, let me, uh, leave you with one little exercise, uh, and then a thought the exercise, which I've done successfully in groups, beginning with kids at the age of 14 and up is, uh, I say, all right, take out a piece of paper. If I was going to, uh, give you a mission and a budget to you know do a project for the government or a company or your spiritual institution and you had a, a money to spend and a problem to solve and you could have any three people in this room any three other students on the group that you ran which three people would you put write them down and then i say all right how many of you think that your name came up more than average and if you don't raise your hand Tell me when you're going to change your behavior and your posture and your enrollment oh, so that you wow. would be the person that would be written down more than average. Moment, because if someone's actually listening, they really have to understand that when they wrote down those three names, they knew instantly which three people to write down. But they're not acting like those three people. And they could. There's nothing holding them back from acting like those three people. And the thing I wanted to leave you too with is uh, I'm just really impressed at your generosity in doing this podcast and in the work you're each doing in your own way to make a ruckus. So thank you for that. And thank you for taking the time. All right. Thanks so much, Seth. And thank you, Hunter. I appreciate it. Uh, any place else we should check out? I know you blog daily. Any place else we should start looking up, finding you? Well, if every person who reads this shared Stop Stealing Dreams with 10 more people, that would get us over 4 million, which would be great. All right. There it is. Thank you so much, Seth. Thanks so much for listening. We'd like to remind you that at StartedUpInnovation.com, we're trying to provide that support of changing education in the ways that Mr. Godin was talking about. If you would like to set up a consultation, please email me, Don, at StartedUpInnovation.com, where we try to implement more techniques of Genius Hour, 20% time at the elementary and middle school levels, and how to start an innovation class at the high school level. Again, go to startitupinnovation.com. Join us again next week as we interview another guest that challenges us to think, innovate, and transform. Until then, remember that to create and serve fosters a life of purpose and abundance, and those opportunities are everywhere. Thanks for listening.